2: Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what is making news this week. Charles Leclerc not only won the Australian Grand Prix, but made it a grand slam with pole, the victory, leading every lap and the fastest lap of the race. Max Verstappen was in a commanding second place, but retired with a fuel system failure. His second DNF of the season already. That handed second place to Sergio Perez and third to George Russell. Shane van Gisberg and Chaz Mostert split the four supercars' race wins across the Albert Park weekend. Giz probably could have clean swept the whole thing based on race pace, but a costly curb strike in race one qualifying meant he had to come from the back of the grid and could only make his way up to third. Uh, and in Sunday's finale, he nipped a break into turn nine while chasing Mostert, uh, and that cost him a fairly likely win in that one. Joey Mawson won the S5000 round with two wins from three races, and Aaron Love won three of the four Career Cup races before clashing with Luke Youlden in the finale, which was won by Harry Jones. Formula One stars Fernando Alonso and Sergio Perez were treated to laps in supercars on the Thursday evening at Albert Park. Perez was let loose on his own in Triple H spare Red Bull Commodore, uh, which was there for the speed comparison. And Alonso had Thomas Randall riding shotgun as he drove Randall's actual Tickford race car around the Albert Park circuit. We'll have plenty more on that later. And Gen 3 testing is in full swing at Phillip Island at the moment. um, Randall and Jake Kostecki drove the Mustang yesterday, while Andre Heimgartner and Macaulay Jones drove the Camaro. And today it's Will Davison and Anton Di Pasquale in the Mustang, and Gary Jacobson and Scott Pye in the Camaro. Now, joining me to discuss all that and much more is a teammate who I would still happily buy a pint for, even though he's probably not going to buy me one back, as was the case on, I think, Wednesday night last week, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, how was your AGP weekend?
1: In my defense, we hardly saw each other for the rest of the weekend. Um, You were uh, pretty busy in F1 land, and I was Mm. uh, based more in the Supercars paddock. But, um, yeah, I think no matter where you were at Albert Park, it was a pretty great place to be. We talked about uh, it sort of closing the circle on what happened in in 2020 where COVID shut the event down on the Friday. And to me, it did certainly feel like that sort of healing moment that we were hoping it was. um, To see the event not only back, but um, its biggest ever in terms of crowds was amazing. Um, The South Australian in me wants to point out that it wasn't actually as big a crowd as the final one in Adelaide in 1995, but um, it was certainly an amazing atmosphere. On the weekend
2: Well, that's interesting because Formula One was pushing that it was the biggest multi-day sporting event in Australian sports history. So you're saying Adelaide still still has that.
1: Yeah, I think the four day quote from the Adelaide one was like five twenty thousand and it was like two fifty oh, wow. on the Sunday. Um, they were proper big numbers
2: yeah that uh, that 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 is that's big numbers, but still, as you say, it was the place was jumping. Um, it was cool to be a part of it. it was cool to be there. Um, and yeah, it's definitely in some ways, you know, between obviously we got the upswing and Formula One's popularity in general through the Netflix series and you know a, a fantastic championship last year, and then you know that little, you know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Sort of that, that the impact of that for for Melbourne having missed out the last couple of years, um, it all contributed to just a fantastic event. So you know, good on the good on the Australian Grand Prix Corp for sticking through a couple of tough years and and bouncing back in about as fine a fashion as you possibly could. Let's have a chat about the race itself. Very dominant victory for Charles Leclerc and uh, with another DNF for Verstappen. It feels a lot like the title race is done and dusted, which is kind of weird because we're like three races into a very, very long season. Um, Leclerc leads George Russell, who's second in the points, which kind of says everything about where the title fight is at at the moment by 34 points. Verstappen is 46 points back. Um, Lewis Hamilton slightly less than that, but obviously not really in a position in terms of car pace to feel like he's going to go out there and try and challenge for the title. I was in the Verstappen media pen session after the race and he was adamant that he's not even thinking about winning the title this year. He said he's already so far back that he would need to start beating Leclerc now to make up the deficit. And the reality is that the Ferrari has the edge on pace. We always thought it was really close between those two, but there's no doubt that we saw at Albert Park that the Ferrari is very, very fast. Um, Lewis Hamilton, like I said, doesn't seem like a contender at the moment either based on the pace of the Mercedes. Like how weird is it to be... Basically, almost ruling out Hamilton and Verstappen for the 2022 title like this early in
1: the season. It is weird. I mean, like racing drivers are a bit dramatic, aren't they? haven't got the fastest car this week, so it's uh, it's championship over already <laughs> with uh, 20 races to go. Um, it certainly must be hard for Lewis to get his head around where they're at. I mean, he's got his hands full just beating George Russell at the moment. Forget about where the rest of them are. Uh, clearly Charles Leclerc and Ferrari are the favourites now and not just because Leclerc's got such a points lead but more so the, the speed and the reliability of that Ferrari yeah. um, is, is amazing and I think um, really there's a bit of a bit of a title fight, hangover element to this, isn't there? I mean Ferrari had the ability to concentrate on their 2022 car in the back end of last year where the other guys were fighting tooth and nail for that title. So um, I feel like that's played a part, but there's such a long way to go. Yes, the reliability stuff is a big concern at Red Bull, and they've thrown away a lot of points for Max in the first couple of races. But, yeah, I just think um, we're so early in the season. The development race will be uh, as big as ever this year, and there's probably more potential in, in the Red Bull and the Mercedes than, uh, than we've seen so far.
2: Yeah, there definitely is. And the development race is going to be critical and we're going to see the form, I think, shifting around a lot and the cost cap plays into that. When do you play your cards? When do you bring your upgrades? Your limited wind tunnel time? When do you When do you press the button and go, right, yeah, this is what we're going to go with because you don't get that many shots at it anymore. But certainly, like as you pointed out, that Ferrari, at the moment, like you just can't see anyone um, beating that Ferrari and the gap, particularly on race pace. Now they've sort of obviously figured out – How to best set that car up? Like when it's in the window, it definitely does look like it's a fair bit quicker uh, than the Red Bull. So, yeah, they're they're in. But you know, you know, healthy Ferrari, healthy Formula One. That's uh, that's all good news. But um, I just, yeah, it's just right now leaving Albert Park. You go, how's anyone actually going to beat this bloke? But as you say, long season. What did you make of Daniel Ricciardo's weekend? I mean, the McLarens looked more competitive than they have all season. Uh, And with a couple of DNFs for, you know, Carlos Sainz and Max, obviously, they finished fifth and sixth in the race, Lando, uh, ahead of Dan. I mean, I know he was behind his, his teammate, but you'd reckon that he would have taken that heading into the Australian Grand Prix weekend, given how they started the season.
1: Yeah, I mean, Daniel seemed pretty positive about the whole thing afterwards. And on first glance, it was certainly a positive story overall. Like, the question going in was, can he get any points? So to be sixth was a great result. But, yeah, then you sort of do look a little bit deeper. I mean, Daniel was three-tenths off Lando in qualifying, and there were periods in the race there where he didn't seem to quite have the pace that Lando did. So he's sort of he's, – he's number two driver there at the moment, um, mm. and he's going to have to really pull something out to, to get on top of that. But as for where they're at overall – Lando was pretty negative, wasn't he, through the weekend, saying it was sort of 80% track-specific. Yeah. that That's uh, why they were going better. Um, and Daniel had a bit more of a glass-half-full sort of lens on it. So, um, yeah, we'll see uh, We'll see how they, they're able to develop through the season.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, they, they uh, even Andre Seidel said afterwards that, you know, there's probably three factors that played into it. One is a bit better understanding of their car, Another was a couple of small upgrades that they bought and the other was the fact that the track just did suit their car. So there is a fair bit of, you know, track-specific stuff to their form. But, you know, they weren't massive upgrades they bought. So I think the reason that, that, that Daniel was so uh, opti- uh, optimistic afterwards was that, like, they are discovering they, – they obviously are discovering things about the package that they've got and they obviously are improving – what they have without having to uh, to have a massive swing at, at, at big upgrades and change the whole philosophy of the car. So um, perhaps there is a bit of hope for that team moving forward, particularly at the right circuits. I'll tell you who had a shocker on the weekend, and that was uh, Sebastian Vettel. An engine problem uh, in practice followed by a crash in free practice three followed by another crash in the race itself. I mean, I'm guessing he should have gone, well, I'll just wait till Europe to start my season rather than fly to Australia. Um, I scored a photographer's... uh, Bibbin was trackside. On the other side of turn 10 when he went into the wall in practice, uh, I spent some time at turn one on Friday as well, and the Astons just look evil to drive. Like, they look so difficult to drive. Like, this was something that sort of got brought up in the press room a couple of times between journos on the weekend. At what point does does a four-time world champion at the back end of his career just go, I don't need this anymore? Like, what's he got to gain from driving what looks to be a hugely – difficult car at this stage of his career.
1: Yeah, it didn't look like fun for him, did it? Um, and naturally he was pretty downbeat about the whole thing. It was just a horror weekend for that that team as a whole and sad to see a four-time world champion struggling like that. Um, the car was clearly bad, like you said, but then he crashed it twice as well, trying to do too much with it. Um, so, yeah, even that scooter ride on Friday cost him €5,000. So just everything he did just turned to turned to powder for him. I happen to be actually you were talking about going trackside. I was over there at um, Turn Nine and Ten looking at the cars on Friday when his thing stopped, um, and it was uh, interesting to see him like pushing the car back into the into the access area and getting a leatherman off uh, off an official and uh, start working on the car, um, yeah. trying to help uh, a bit of cooling there to make sure it didn't. Uh, didn't catch fire. He's he's just become such a likable character as his career's gone on and um, pretty popular in Melbourne, going by some of the cheers as well. Um, yeah, as that side of his uh, appeal has evolved, it's uh, it's really a shame that he's really faded uh, towards the back of the grid.
2: I was having that that, that almost exact conversation with um, with one of my colleagues at Auto, from Autosport on the weekend that. You know, like when he got out of the car after that crash, you know, huge cheer from the crowd. He is so popular in Australia. And imagine saying that, you know, back in the Mm. Red Bull days. Like he was public enemy number one, him and Helmut Marco. you know, like nobody here liked them at all. And now he is just – he always was like a really funny guy. there was just obviously in the – through the lens of, you know, Mark Webber and – uh, all that stuff He was just disliked here But I think now that all that's in the past People can really see that he is this funny Pretty easy going sort of dude And he has those little quirks to him And
1: it's all quite fun
2: to watch mm. unfold
1: Yeah it's a shame uh, obviously That uh, Ferrari didn't really have its act together uh, Like it does now when when he was there Yeah um, and, and thinking about that The other thing just going back to Charles Leclerc Is uh, one of the things I found interesting across the weekend was um, he was quite um, frustrated with some of this narrative about this Charles 2.0, yeah, the, the idea yeah. that he's really improved this year um, yeah. and pushing it back to being, no, this is about the car being better. It's such a classic um, yeah, situation in motorsport where um, he's, he's the dominant driver all of a sudden, but uh, he's actually saying, well, don't, don't praise me. I've, I've always been this good. <laughs> so yeah. What, yeah, what did yeah. you make of all that?
2: Yeah, I think that it's um, I think that it's it's been so hard with those Ferraris to get a read on like how good we we know that Charles good because he was good at Sauber and he's been good at Ferrari, but it is so difficult when the car's not quite there and when it's so inconsistent to go how good is this guy? And it was you know he did finish behind Science in the championship last year. He didn't finish on the podium as many times as Science, so there was kind of this idea that Science actually kind of had his measure. Whereas some deeper analysis would sort of show that he actually had a really good season last year. And I guess that's where it probably is frustrating for a drive when everyone goes, oh, you've lifted your game. You go, well, hang on. I was doing – and you can go – I've had this conversation um, with supercars drivers all the time. That, like most, most drivers will tell you that like the best race they ever drove was one where they came like 17th. And the car was an absolute dog and they were fighting it the whole way and they were racing blokes and they maximized a really mm. poor package and got like a better result than they should have, that was really good driving. The day that your thing's hooked up and you stick it on pole and drive away from the field, that's the easy day. When the car's working, that's that's easy. You're not driving at that. You don't have to drive it that well. The car's doing all the work. It's when you have to manhandle it. So I guess- There's probably an element of that to his attitude there, just going, no, no, I haven't got better. I've always been driving well. I did some amazing things in a poor car last year. Now I've just got a good car and I can drive away from the field. Like, how good is this?
1: It's interesting how he um, seems to deal personally with the porpoising so well. I mean, it's probably a bit easier to take when you're setting purple sectors everywhere. But um, just um, thinking about having the confidence to to tip that thing into turn nine at 300 or whatever they're doing there, when the car is just moving around so much. And clearly the Ferrari porpoising isn't a big issue in the corners like it is, say, for the Merc. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just incredible that um, that car is so good, but they are still they are having that issue.
2: Yeah, yeah. It, is, it does seem to be the same issue but very different consequences compared to the Mercedes. So it's still they can still make it work. And, and Charles said that after the race. Some people were asking him about it and he said, no, it doesn't really worry me. Like, I just turn the car in and the thing's fine. Like, it's it's all good. It just bounces a bit on the straights, um, and that's it.
1: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download
0: the Priceline app today. Your
1: savings are waiting.
0: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline.
2: Let's transition from F1 to supercars, and let's do it by talking about a pretty unique crossover that took place on the Thursday evening at Albert Park. We saw Fernando Alonso and Sergio Perez both Drive supercars Um, There's a few little Interesting notes Came out of it Both did reasonably well Uh, Fernando did have A little off At turn one And apparently Perez got the old uh, KRE V8 Buzzing up to uh, Close to nine grand A few times uh, In the Red Bull car Um it's also worth noting, I think, how close the Alonso Drive went to going up in smoke entirely in, in uh, that second qualifying session on, on Thursday <laughs> evening as well because uh, because Tommy Randall had a big lose at turn five and if it hadn't been for Jake Kostecki already wrecking the Tech Pro barrier and they just sort of hurled it over the tyre wall and went, well, we'll worry about that later, uh, Randall's car would have collected it and been very, very secondhand. He actually had a – there was a mark on the rear wing end plate from the tyre barrier, so if the Tech Pro barrier had been there, his car would have been – Um, pretty stuffed and that the whole thing probably wouldn't have happened. But anyway, on the whole, Stefan, like how cool was it to to watch all that unfold?
1: Surely if um, the Castrol Mustang wasn't available, there was like a pink and blue number 14 that um, Fernando could have just jumped into. It looked like it had great synergy between uh, Alpine and BJR. But, Mm. yeah, obviously uh, really great for supercars. I mean, I think there's still some video content coming for F1 digital channels that will – Get a huge international reach um, and show the category off very well. I was actually down at uh, down at Fernando's um, sort of uh, one, and I think you were at, you were at Sergio's because it yeah. was a bit unfortunate they were happening at the same time. But I think for both guys, it, it didn't seem like a PR chore at all. They were genuinely enjoying uh, yeah. enjoying the experience. Um, as you, as you said, like Triple uh, Eight had their spare car there for the um, speed comparisons. And I think, um, you know, Triple Eight had asked Sergio whether, um, whether he could right-foot break, uh, and he politely said no. And uh, <laughs> there were some big over revs on those downshifts that the Triple Eight boys were pretty relieved that that motor made it through all the speed comparisons it did because to lunch itself in front of a big crowd on Sunday wouldn't have been great. No. But uh, overall, just a really cool thing, and for it to be on Thomas Randall's birthday there as well was, uh, was a nice touch too.
2: I was just about to mention that it was his birthday, and he was buzzing after it, wasn't he? Like um, he was so excited. I think he's always been a bit of a Fernando fan, and to uh, to go for a, go for a ride with him in his race car, I think he found it really cool. You and I grabbed him for a chat afterwards about just how cool it was. Um, so uh, yeah, let's play it. Let's have a listen. Yeah, so Fernando Alonso just took you for a ride in a
3: supercar around Albert Park. That is pretty wild. That's a sentence that you don't hear. <laughs> very often in with those words in it in that order. So yeah, I mean you can't say that. Like you said, that happens very often. And uh, yeah, just credit to Alpine, Castrol, Tickford Racing, and I uh, said the Australian Grand Prix Corporation as well for making it all happen in a very short period of time. So uh, I'm sure. Oh, I think you definitely had a blast, and and I had a blast too. So like you said, not not many people can say that, and. uh and, yeah, my birthday too. So, a good birthday present. How did he, how did he go? Um, he actually went pretty well, to be honest. He seemed quite comfortable. Like, I, he was pretty reserved. Left foot braking. Um, I was just trying to guide him through what gears to take a few corners because the, the gears that we take are very different to what he'll be taking. Um, some corners he's taking in gears that we don't even have. So, um, yeah, a lot of differences for him. Um, he actually ran off at Turn 1 on his last fly, which was pretty funny. Um, but no, it was really good and uh, yeah, not... I've only ever been for a passenger lap once before
1: and, but this, this definitely takes the cake. Triple Eight had a ride car for Checo Perez to drive around, but this was your race car. You were you a bit nervous about the cogs in the gearbox?
3: <laughs> a little bit, knowing that um, yeah, he, were, he wasn't uh, right for breaking the clutch, but he was, he was all good on it. Um, yeah, it was the downshifts were very spaced out. Um, and yeah, the upshifts, he was nailing it. So uh, yeah, he got on top of it pretty quickly. Uh, like I said, he was definitely holding back and, and with the passenger, it's, um, yeah, he was driving at low risk. But the cool bit was after that, he then got to take his own engineer around and then they were debriefing after. So I've said if they go well this weekend, they're gonna have to credit us, I reckon. And, uh, that makes sense. Did they offer you a drive in a Formula 1 car as well just to square the ledger? Oh, I think that's coming, Hurricane. No, I hope so. <laughs> I don't think I'll fit in Fernando's seat, though. <laughs> we actually had to put... um, uh, We had an old insert of Lee Holdsworth, so we put <laughs> that in for him. So I don't think he was, um, was going to fit in mine because I think he's about 10 or 11 centimetres shorter. But, um, yeah, it all, all everything went to plan. So um, just really cool for all the partners on the car, the t- team, yeah, Castro, BP... Everyone, ACF, NCI, Herzog, Seal, um, yeah, I think it's um, it's great for the team and it's great
1: for supercars, and uh, yeah, that's the first time he's driven a supercar. Tell us about how this came about as well, because obviously there's the link through Castrol, but I believe you had a bit of a role in it too. Well, I mean, like I said before, it all happened really quickly. Um,
3: early last week I was at a Castrol conference up on the Gold Coast and they mentioned that they were trying to tee something up with Fernando, like a, just a face-to-face Q&A kind of thing and um, I know the, the, the girl at, um, who runs the PR for Alpine, Alex um, Thompson and uh, sent her a message and just said, "Oh, you know, looking at trying to do something there and oh, it would be cool if we could organise a hot lap or something Just just throwing something you know out in the park or an op, uh, a thought, which I figured would be shut down pretty pretty quickly. But, um, yeah, I think she passed it on to more people internally at Alpine and um, sort of got back to Castrol. And then, look, I don't know complete details, but, um, yeah, then Mitch uh, Robinson had to do his handiwork as well. And I think r- really everyone had a role to play mm-hmm. in it happening. And, yeah, I think it was probably one of the best PR things that they've done in such a short period of time. You know, these things can take, yeah, four to six weeks or eight weeks to plan. And, uh, yeah, it's uh,
1: pretty cool. We pulled it off in about a week's worth of work. Being in the F1 pit lane here, does that make you really wish that the European Open Wheel thing had happened for you? I, I mean, I guess, um,
3: yeah, look... It's a tough one because I really am enjoying where I am now um, with the team in supercars. I mean, it's it's a dream to be at this level of motorsport in, in Australia. Um, but then, you know, when F1 comes into town, everyone's kind of like a kid in a candy store. Um, you know, even on the drive into the track, you just want to be there. Like, you switch the drivers quicker and you get to the track earlier to see the cars. And I've been lucky enough to do a couple garage tours this weekend. Um, and it's just mind-boggling, you know, what... The cars, the machinery, the, the carbon work, the detail, the staff, you know, they've got basically their own workshop there as well as the race team. And, yeah, I mean, the budget's are 80 times higher than what we have. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just on a completely um, another level. Um, but, yeah, I still think what we have here in Australia is for, for the budgets we operate at, um is very professional. Um, but it was just great to chat with Fernando and discuss F one stuff, supercar stuff and just life as well. So he was very accommodating with his time and as have the whole the whole team have been really accommodating. And uh yeah, I just think it's great just for the category that um we got to get you know, Alonso in the supercar. Let's get into
2: the supercars racing now. I feel like all we talk about at the moment is how good Shane Van Gisbergen is, but, like, taking, you know, the race four mistake out of it and maybe that sort of quality mistake, although, you know, there was a red flag that sort of, you know, made that mistake a bigger mistake than it actually was. Like, he just showed again across the weekend how good he really is. You know, third from the very back of the grid on Friday, two wins on Saturday. I thought his move on Davo in the second Saturday race was impeccable, like, just brilliant driving uh, we'll get on to his mistake in the Sunday race in a minute, Stefan, but surely the rest of the field just feels helpless against this bloke at the moment.
1: Somehow it's more demoralising the fact that, um, you know, he doesn't dominate these races from the front. He's uh, he's coming through like he can win from a couple of rows back and, as you say, find the uh, podium from the car park or wherever he started in that first race. And, yeah, for Will Davison in particular with this um, this run of, Podiums without a win—it's um, particularly hard. And in that move you were talking about there in the second Saturday race, like Shane just gave him a little a little touch on the way through as well, just to just to really rub it in. It, it felt like, but um, it's funny, like it's the same as the Charles conversation um, with the Ferrari too. Like I asked a few people over the weekend, like how much they think um, this domination is is the Triple Eight car and, and how much is Shane and pretty much every second person had a slightly different different view on what was making most of the difference. But um, I guess in this case, it's kind of academic because clearly it's the best car out there at the moment and the best driver in it. Yeah. So when you put them together, um, they are almost unbeatable. But as Chaz proved on Sunday, the, the only way to, to win it is to put them under pressure and see what happens. So... The 97 did make those two mistakes on the weekend, aborting that first quality lap um, in the qualifying for the first race, obviously. And, and Shane had said afterwards that they'd already aborted the lap before he got the like the curb strike. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and then they got they got hurt, obviously, by the red flag, um, and then the lockup in the last race. So for, for Chaz to get two wins out of the weekend, it wasn't uh, it wasn't all SVG, was it?
2: No, it wasn't. But, I mean, that last race, if he doesn't lock that brake, he probably wins the thing. He had nine laps to go and he was right on, Chaz, and he was faster. Um, What did you make of that mistake? I mean, managing rubber was so tricky over the weekend. I'm not sure it should be seen as some huge indictment on his current form that he nipped a brake in there. We saw plenty of others do it. Where where do you sit on that?
1: Yeah, we we did see others do it, including Anton Di Pasquale in the same race, and it was just um – tough for Shane that he did it after his pit stop and then had to run that yeah. tyre to the end. And it it didn't hold on. Obviously, locking a front and having that was very different to what was the big tyre story of the weekend, which was the, the blistering that people were getting on the soft, um, which was put down to the combination of it being a new surface and that particular surface type and also those, those corner loadings with the sweeping corners. It was the same, really, as we saw at the Bend a couple of years ago, where that caught mm-hmm. people out. But to see uh, the fact that it caught pretty much everyone out here, and D J R, that got them the worst and the most uh, most publicly, really, because they'd gone the most aggressive on strategy um, in that first race, starting on the hard and then planning to do a big stint on the soft. So for those guys to get three poles and not win a race, that was uh, that would have been pretty tough to take.
2: Mm, absolutely. Here's another one for you. Is it time to start believing in Grove Racing's pace in terms of, you know, I'm I i, I I'm not sure the team is at regular front-runner point just yet, but there seems to be a clear trend here, and it's in a pretty promising direction.
1: You've got to hand it to them, like, um, for them to be quick at Simmons and then Albert Park um, consecutively, like, very different track types. Yeah. But just as impressively, like um, – Davey Reynolds in particular was really consistent across the weekend. Like to be, uh, to be at the front across four four quali sessions is is great. And if not for touching the wall, which I think led to the suspension failure on Sunday in that last race, um, you know Dave should have won the weekend overall. Yeah. So um, clearly they've started better than than we both thought. Um, they're putting the money in. That's a big part of it. The Groves are investing probably more than. I would have thought anyone would in this last year of Gen 2, but yeah. they're also doing it the right way because we've seen a lot of times in motorsport that just putting uh, putting more finance in doesn't necessarily get you the result, but they've got the right people there that know where to put the money to get the performance, and clearly David Couchy was a great pickup for them in the off-season. It's, um, you know, it's not completely different to what we've seen other Dudes do before, like pick someone out of Triple Eight and combine that with a good spend, and get a fairly quick yield out of it. So, there's all of that, and then you know, as Stephen Grove pointed out on the weekend, if you can give David Reynolds a car that he's confident in and, and a good environment, he can he can deliver, which we spoke about after Tassie too. So, um, yeah, that's certainly uh, certainly good for the sport, I think, to see another another team up there.
2: Absolutely, uh, good weekend for Chaz Mostert with those couple of wins, but he was also involved in a. Uh of a tear up with James Courtney in the second race, fighting for third at the last two corners. Uh, Courtney sort of ran Mostert wide on the penultimate corner and then Mostert just returned serve by basically just punting uh, Courtney into the wall at the last corner. Uh, Mostert copped a penalty for it. They both said the other the other was in the wrong afterwards. They were fairly – both felt pretty hard done by. Uh, what, what was your take on that one?
1: There were definitely some split opinions about, about that whole thing, like – I think the way um, James drove Chaz wide at that penultimate corner was a little rude. Yeah, uh, Chaz, you know, like I'm—I've always been a believer that you deserve some racing room, even if you are on the outside. Yeah, oh, for sure. But yeah. um, but whatever happened there, nothing excuses just dumping someone in the last corner with contact behind the rear wheel. In in yeah. my opinion, like that, yeah. it's it's not NASCAR. We can't have these these dudes no. doing that. No. So I think it was. It was a very poor bit of decision making from Chaz. Um, you know, he threw away 40 points trying to get four more in that race. And we've talked a lot about whether WAU is up to winning a championship, whether they can put a car on the track every week that is a front runner. But so far, we've given Chaz a free pass on whether he is capable of putting mm. a championship together. Yeah. And I think this really put the question mark on that uh, into the spotlight some of his decision-making in the past. Obviously, he's been very well documented uh, with contact with teammates and contact with uh, Cam Waters, um, even since they've been in different teams. But, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was not his finest moment for sure. What was your, what was your read on it?
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I, I, what's, what's really silly about it is that, like, uh, there's no reason why Courtney might not have copped, like, a five-second penalty or something for, for what he did. You know, so the smartest way to do was just finish behind him, and then make sure that you're, um, make sure that you know that that someone's sending emails to race control, going, "Hey, that wasn't nice. You can't run the bloke wide there because you know if he has a bit of room, he's actually very well set up for that corner, and he has a real shot at actually passing JC there." So, no, no, I, I think that's a really good point you make about you know you got to think about if you want to win a championship, you got to think about that stuff, and that's what everyone says. Someone like Jamie Wink up. Was so good at it was you know it was not letting stuff like that get to him thinking about the fact that okay you know if just let's just maximise with the exact situation we've got and just score as many points as we can with the situation that we have and not throw points away trying to improve a situation by just a little bit and that's exactly what you're talking about there so yeah silly silly stuff from Chaz and and kind of um. You know, he had to be penalised. If you're going to hit someone like that, you're going to get penalised pretty much no matter what they did to you before that. And that's that's exactly what we um, what we saw.
1: And it it was a shame. Like um, James really deserved deserved a podium there. He yep. had a um, very promising weekend. He had a lot of speed, and so for him to not really get anything out of it, um, largely due to that, was uh, less than less than he deserved
2: let's chat about the new track layout through the lens of both Formula One and supercars. I have to say, I do genuine, genuinely believe that this is a better layout than what we had at Albert Park. Um, funnily enough, there was sort of talk earlier or last week that the supercars racing would suffer. Um, but I think that it was incredible for supercars. That run up the back is so fast. I mean, we're talking about like Conrad straight speeds with load on the car. I think it's a brilliant challenge and the drivers seem to be enjoying it except when their soft tires were blowing up. But Um, But then for Formula 1 It kind of didn't necessarily do as much To improve the show As we were sort of hoping Uh, They did remove one of the four DRS zones Before Free Practice 3 I actually spoke uh, about I was doing some filming for Autosport On Thursday And I actually spoke about How I thought 4 was overkill Um, And um, in hindsight I think 4 might have actually helped To just help guys get that little bit closer Or maybe even try and sneak by On the way into 9 It could have been quite spectacular But um, even without the F1 race being a crazy pass fest. I still think new Albert Park is better than old Albert Park. What do you reckon?
1: I think so. I mean, it was, it was exciting, the fact that they changed it because we didn't know what it was going to do. Um, certainly in supercars world, the drivers were pretty uh, amped up about it after uh, feeling the speed um, on Thursday. And in the end, whether it was good or bad for passing, I mean – it's it's the same at most places when you have a uh, tyre quality difference, whether it's you know hard to soft or just tyre age, there's going to be passing. And when everyone's got the same stuff, it's probably going to be difficult to pass if everyone's doing a similar lap time. So, yeah, the the layout means that you can get some creative moves done. I mean, when there's lefts and then rights, we were seeing um, you know Shane outfoxing people that way. So yep. there was definitely scope for overtaking. So that was that was good um the the f1 stuff yeah with that fourth drs stone so that was that was really interesting that they took that out mid-race meeting mm-hmm. and there was a yeah. great story that uh, i think adam cooper wrote on uh, the motorsport network platforms about the fact that fernando alonso had had a hand in that was yeah. that um yeah take us through a little bit more of the background to that because you were over there in f1 land
2: yeah, look, I think so basically what happened, it, it was unique that it happened how it happened. Um, it was sort of made on the grounds of uh, safety. Um, I, I think that it was very interesting because was. I think it was a, a basically a 50-50 split on who wanted to do it and who didn't want to do it because for a lot of the teams, like, they had to make fairly radical uh, setup changes because the DRS really, really helps with the uh, porpoising. That calms down the porpoising. So, like for Mercedes, for example, you know they then had to start thinking about setup because the porpoising was going to be so much worse in that part of the circuit. So it definitely sort of shook the form guide up a little bit, and we saw the likes of probably the Alfa Romeos and stuff have to sort of step back on their setup a little bit, and and it got a bit trickier for them. But yeah, it was it was it was pretty political and and, and quite fascinating the way it all sort of unfolded the 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 difficult thing is once once it becomes a safety concern and once safety concerns are raised it's very difficult to sort of backtrack on that and it's very difficult to ignore it and you're just asking for trouble if you don't do something about it so um so I guess that's why they did it but I think that it would have been you know a few drivers spoke about after the race yeah it probably would have helped it probably would have helped the racing um a little bit but you know coming back to the circuit it it can't be any worse it was always a nearly impossible place to pass i th- i think that i think that they've made a step in the right direction at the end of the day it's a street track you can't there's certain things you can't move you know there's you you have to work within the confines of what you've got and i think they've kind of done they've done reasonably well in that respect i think it's a it's a better circuit
1: yeah and it's just um just i guess parking the racing for a moment like it's just such a spectacular place to to put on a car race it, it showcased Melbourne so well across the weekend with the weather that it had. I mean you've sometimes you've just got to take in the the big picture of of where it is and what they've got to work around. Uh, but yeah, what a what a brilliant place for it.
2: Absolutely. Let's take a look around the world now. Uh, Kiwi Mitch Evans doubled up in the Rome E-Prix with a pair of wins. He beat Robert uh, Robin Friens in the first race and Jean-Éric Vernet in the second. Uh, in the Kota MotoGP race, it was victory for Ania Bastianini. Who asked longtime leader Jack Miller to claim the win? Miller ended up third at the finish behind Alex Rins, while Remy Gardner was 20th. Uh, Mark Marquez put in an amazing ride on his comeback from his crash in Indonesia. He dropped to last with a bad start and charged his way through to sixth. And William Byron became the first repeat winner of the NASCAR Cup Series season after holding off Joey Logano at Martinsville. All right, it's time for our Castrol Stars of the Week. Stefan, who gets your gold sticker this week?
1: Well, he perhaps didn't get the most attention out of anybody, but um, I am going with Gary Jacobson um, and Premier Racing. Gary chalked up his 100th supercar start uh, in the previous event at Tasmania, and I think it's fair to say he's still got a fair bit to prove. Uh, So to see him score three straight top tens over the weekend... With a highlight of sixth in race two, was uh, was great to see. Um, for a new team to get a, sugar, a bit of sugar like that in particular um, was uh, a good reward, I think. So that's why Gary Jacobson is my Castrol Star of the Week. Good choice.
2: I'm going to go with Lee Holdsworth scoring his first podium since returning to Supercars as a full timer. Um, he got he had a bit of help in uh, in the form of uh, Mustard and JC. Um, having their big bust up at the last corner. But, you know, it's just great to see. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. If, uh, if seeing nice things coming to a bloke like Lee Holdsworth isn't your bag, then uh, you're pretty hard to please. So I very much enjoyed that one and he is my Castrol Star of the Week. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast. We'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News.